this upcoming decade, we need proper action. Our languages are important. You can't have art, song, dance. You can't have storytelling. Our culture survives through our languages. The invisible, the intangible, what we can't touch and see is actually the most important of all. Whilst we will have special sacred and secret words and phrases and knowledge systems, of course, we do also have our general languages for everyone to be able to use to look after this place. These are the languages for all of us living here, no matter where we come from. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. 2022 marks the beginning of the UN Decade of Indigenous Languages. In this episode, I speak with Darren McKenney. We had a great conversation and it's being presented in two parts. This is the first and I hope you really enjoy it. Yama, Darren, it's a real honour to speak with you. Thanks very much for finding time to speak with me. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Anthea. It's um, awesome to be uh, here. Yeah, no, it's really, really exciting. I'm, I'm such an admirer of... Uh, the Polima Indigenous Languages and Technology Conference and the work of what you do. So, you know, it's a real treat to speak with you. So, so thank you very much. I'm speaking with Darren McKinney, who is a Gamilaroi and Wiradjuri man born on Awabakal country, where he lives and where he founded the Miramar Aboriginal Language and Technology Centre. That's an organisation that plays a vital role in language revitalisation and advocacy. When the organisation was founded in 2002, it was done with a focus to revive the Awabakal language and culture in Newcastle, Lake Macquarie and the Lower Hunter Valley. Darren is CEO of Miramar and a key force behind many of the technologies, tools, resources and training pathways Miramar shares with First Peoples to empower them to recover, record and use their languages. And he's very much a key force behind the inspirational Kandu Polima Indigenous Language and Technology Conference last held in 2019, and that was also the International Year of Indigenous Languages. Why do I mention that? Because that, that, that year really led into a very significant um, milestone this year, which is the kickoff of the UN International Decade of Indigenous Languages. Um, that's a very much an outcome of that year of Indigenous languages in 2019. And it's really, really important for people, culture and country, because the decade aims to draw global attention to the critical situation of many Indigenous languages and to mobilise stakeholders and resources for their preservation, revitalisation and promotion. Darren, before we dig in, can I ask you, tell me, once, once considered extinct, how widely is Awabakal spoken or known today? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, first off, we do have a couple of different pronunciations of that word and, and, and uh, no one's right or wrong because we don't know the... Um, the word itself was, or uh, the phrase to what it means, was actually created by a non-Aboriginal person. Yeah, his name is uh, Dr. John Fraser. Uh, this was, uh, the, the phrase was created to reference um, the people, land and um, language uh, back in 1892 when it was first published there. Um, the pronunciations uh, can be uh, uh, awabakal, 
Awabakal or anything else in between. Mm. Um, the word Awa refers to flat, Awaba meaning uh, place of flat. And there was actually re represented as, as what we do know is the traditional name for Lake Macquarie, um, what we think is the largest saltwater lake in the Southern Hemisphere. I don't know how many times the size of Sydney Harbour it is. I think it's about three times the size of Sydney Harbour, this saltwater lake there. Um, and Carl is a suffix added to the end to denote man from, the masculine. So it's like saying uh, the man from the lake, a Wabakarleen is woman from the lake. Mm. Um, we've got many languages throughout New South Wales, Victoria, and even uh, Queensland, uh, which are all named after the word no referencing no name this place being, no name this place has, no, 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 stop asking us for a name. These are areas which were uh, names which were either derived or utilised from our languages to help the, um, the surveyors and the explorers, you know, when they're on horse and camel and whatever else, foot, whatever, wandering, looking and mapping our country from the first moment, you know, the concept of labelling a place in this manner within boundaries is a Western thinking in that. That's why, like I was saying, so many of our languages and nations and, and countries are, are named after the word no. So for us here, we think the last speaker or speakers um, speaking where language is happening between more than two people or two people, at least conversation happening, could have been up to 150 years ago. Yeah, Newcastle, second oldest town in Australia after Sydney. From what I understand, Hobart come about three months later. Um, but this town here had a massive impact because of the, the convict settlement, which was started here. The first Aboriginal mission in Australia started here, and that was all based upon uh, conversion to a religion, uh, which was not ours. Um, we also had coal found in Australia here. So you've got the exports happening. The Australian Agricultural Company set itself up here. So this is like where farming started. And you've got all these impacts, negative. Every single one of those is negative towards the people and um, to, to, to people and country. So that, uh, of course, impacted upon a lot of, lot of not just language, but knowledge loss. And um, so, yeah, we could easily say 150 years. So the reclamation, yeah, we, we started ourselves as, a, as, a, as an Aboriginal community group back in 2000, uh, roughly. And uh, it's, 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 it has, of course, led to now the words being spoken, you know, phrases being spoken, but the need has constantly grown year after year after year for all sorts of different uh, reasons there, whether it be uh, Aboriginal community wanting words and knowledge, whether it be organisations wanting, of course, proudly to name their, their organisation or their programs using names, but then, of course, to conversation or to, uh, to song, you know, whether, it, you know, even though we struggle, oh, like, yeah, cringe converting or translating the national anthem to a Wabakal, other other possible songs like children's things like uh, head shoulders knees toes and just the simple things like that which of course uh, create the, inf the the interest but they allow us to quickly hopefully we move on to where language yeah has its purpose and that's looking after 
country, listening to country and uh, and um, and being able to uh, respect and care for country and that they are. So they're the, which is what we're supposed to be best in the world at as Aboriginal people. We're supposed to be best of the world at understanding and caring for our country. So Thank you. That's a nice segue into what I was going to, to talk about. You feature in a short film commissioned by DFAT called Language and Country. That's part of a series called Language and Me. That's for listeners. That's available for everyone to watch on ABC iView. It's very, very beautiful. And in it, uh, Darren, you share some really beautiful moving insights about country and what it means to you um, and listening to country. Would you like to sort of paraphrase or tell me about your thoughts and feelings about language, why it is so important and what it means to you personally and as part of your greater community? Yep. Not sure if any of the listeners have got a coffee cup or a mug or a takeaway cup or a glass of water sitting on their table or in their hand or in their armchair and yep but the way I if I can use this analogy is is look at the cup look at the mug look at the holder as the language we pick up the cup to drink the water to drink the tea to drink the coffee that's what we want that's the knowledge. Language is just the holder of what we seek. Beautiful. The knowledge. It's the it's it's the it's the knowledge which gets us through the day. Yeah. Okay, just like the coffee and the tea and the water gets us through the day. It's it's that it's that what is what language allows us to get to, mm. which is what we seek. Until we access the language, it's just a label. It's it's a and without ask when you receive an Aboriginal word, mm. whether it be on a signpost, whether it be uh, on a map, or whether it be uh, in whatever context it is. Like I gave uh, you, you gave your audience a word earlier when you spoke of our name of our organisation, Miramar. So it's always about when you have that, be inquisitive. Seek the knowledge which goes with that. So ask, what does that word mean? What does that phrase mean? So like as an example, Miramar uh, loosely translates to mean uh, to save, to care for, to protect, uh, to conserve, to stop from loss. Uh, all of those things plus much more. We can't, we can't, for much of our, for the majority of our languages we and our knowledges, we can't do a like-for-like like mm. translation from our way of thinking to Western uh, understandings and way of thinking there. So we have to be accepted and maybe we might simplify things sometimes. But, yeah, so that's the way we like to describe. For me, as, as an analogy, always trying to think of analogies to be able to describe that, and it's and that's what, yeah, for me, that language, uh, if, even if right now if I forgot what the question was, but that's okay, um, where we're leading to, but for me, it's that language which allows us to that knowledge, which allows us to be able to, you know, uh, walk outside, hear the birds, feel the wind, uh, and even if it's the rain, whether it's soft rain or hard rain or, um, you know, what's happening, is it hot or cold today? Yeah, there's the starting point of being able to listen to country 
and uh, and for it to tell us uh, what to do, whether we want to stay inside that day or whether we want to go out. That's all part of you know day to day looking for and caring for um, country as such. Yes, yeah, you spoke so beautifully about language is the gate, you know, the cup, or language is a gateway to our knowledge systems, and our language and knowledges are all environmentally based, and that's yeah, so, 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 so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And, and what people don't realise is, is that, and especially when it comes to our plants and our animals, the label is just that. Okay, that that name on it. When we when we dig deeper, and I'll, and like I'll flick over to our animal world for a moment, and it's something which, whilst I'm not a Gugimatha person, I'll 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 recollect this from a Gugimatha lady, which um, told me this, and um, and forgive me if any Gugimatha people are listening and I get this wrong, let me know so I can write it. But our, uh, a lady by the name of Alberta Hornsby, who I treasure. Um, so dearly is a Gugimatha lady who lives up in uh, Cooktown. Gugimatha country takes in um, the, the Hope Vale uh, community as well there. And, um, and I visited Cooktown once and all I see around the place is all these little bronze kangaroo uh, statues everywhere with all these labels of kangaroo and inverted you know, commas around the word. And I'm like, Alberta, why is all these bronze kangaroos around? She says, well, that's where... The, this is the word gung, where, where the word kangaroo comes from. Oh, okay. And me being that inquisitive, I said, well, does it mean something? And she says, yes. And uh, first off, she says, like, uh, pronounce it more gunguru, gunguru, mm-hmm. not kangaroo, like the English, British proper way of speaking. Uh, but she says, mm. it loosely translates Darren to mean old man, Eastern grey. Mm. This uh, age sex and species old man eastern gray so there's knowledge there's western knowledge there's our traditional knowledge there's uh scientific uh knowledge within that like uh, unfortunately the scientists got it wrong when they called it macropod gigantus uh, and uh and uh, the biologists got it wrong when they decided to label all of the weird hopping amazing creatures which we have all over the country after that one word because gunguru is actually it's like saying it's like calling your grandfather the grandmother up on gugimatha country she has her own name so gunguru was only given to the grandfather Mm. grandma gets her own name the adults get their name the children get their name Mm. they like to call it say go over to western australia and call and use the term red kangaroo Mm. it's like saying red old man eastern gray now that's very confusing (laughs) yeah very nuanced of of, of place and of time and of gender and life cycle and and a lot of the plant-based seasonal calendars you know as you say not one noun for a plant but many words in different languages and uh, physical places and and depending on the season and and the readiness for for reproduction or for eating or yeah and the, and the and the words and our knowledge is fluid it changes with mm. seasons and so forth it changes with what it's doing and uh when it is somewhere and where it and when it's not mm. yeah it changes and so even the thing concept around yeah, place names and dual names, um, which is a, a, a something very strong, which is 
um, yeah, happening more and more. I'm I'm all for place names, not the dual names. Um, I don't know why we have to do the the dual naming bit um, when it's got one name. I think it's just to satisfy the the yeah the tick of the clock of the microsecond of when non-Aboriginal people have been here, just to help them keep going. Uh, for many of our places, but the the, the names can be fluid. Mm. So our place names can be fluid, and uh, but unfortunately, Western thinking doesn't allow that um, uh, as such. There, so yeah, Darren, in that film, which is really it's only about two and a half minutes long, but it certainly packs a punch. It's just beautiful. Um, you also talk about how well you talk about many things, but you talk about that we need to care about our languages, we need to protect our languages, but we, most of all, we need to use our languages. They are the gateway to our knowledge systems and to world to worldviews and understandings that are bigger than we could ever believe and that languages uh, can allow First Nations to be strong going forward. Succinctly, would you like to elaborate on the many nuanced and layered ways that language can enable First Peoples to be strong going forward? It allows us to be back in the position where we should be as the knowledge holders of this country. Uh, wherever we are, whether it's the deserts, the, the freshwater areas, our saltwater country there, the rainforest, the mountains, in uh, all of those places they are. This language system, this knowledge system which we have, which is expressed within, um, you know, uh, does have, once used once again, has our people back in the primary position where it should be as the knowledge holders, as the teachers, as the guides in looking after and caring for country they are. And, um, but one of the, the things is, is that, yeah, we have very various views and varying views around country, which I totally respected, acknowledge, and, and I understand, you know, this, this short history, which we are battling with here in, on our big island, which we all live in today called Australia. Yeah, one of the things is, is that from one group where I did visit, uh, yeah, like I was told that when the old people sat down, when visitors came, they were taught language because they were taught, they needed to teach people, these visitors, how to live and care on that country yourself as well. We need everyone to be doing this using language, understanding language, and, uh, and caring for all of this, everyone caring for all of this together. As in, it's not just, yeah, like whilst we will have special sacred and secret words and phrases and knowledge systems, of course, we do also have our general languages for everyone to be able to use to look after this place. That's so, that's so beautiful. And so, because so, so you, it's, it's like you can't see and understand country unless you can access it through the language that came from it. Um, some is sacred, some is not so sacred. Some is for sharing with everyone, some is sacred. And that just really resonated with me. I've got my, my program from Palima 2019 here. But I just remember those, those wonderful um, older ladies from the Tiwi Islands and they were, and they were and singing and talking about how if they lost their language, they couldn't sing to country. Yeah. And also that country couldn't hear them, but also that they couldn't hear their ancestors, but also 
that their ancestors wouldn't recognise them when they came to go back to country. So it's just such a profound cosmological circle there, isn't it? I mean, and, and so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, this last uh, week has been, it's been, a um, whilst it's been very tiring, um, it's been really exciting. But what I had was um, this experience. So the experience this last week, started last Monday at six o'clock in the evening. We were doing uh, ecological surveys for uh, animals out in the bush, mainly around the uh, koala species there, which is of course endangered on the east coast of New South, uh, the east coast of Australia there. Mm. One of the different things which we did is is that of course, the general thinking is, is that um, me being the only Aboriginal fella amongst the dozen or so ecologists and um, conservation scientists and, and, and students and everything, which were from the university, from CSIRO and so forth, who, who were all here together for this whole week of 6pm to 3, 4am in the morning walk in the bushes is that the general consensus sometimes can be that um, we do a welcome to country and we do an acknowledgement yeah, and we do a smoking before we start and all this type of stuff and so forth and that. But what we actually did was is we all gathered and and we we lit the smoke and you know, we lit the fire, which of course, you know, through country and the and what it brings us, the trees allowed us to take some leaves, which gave us smoke to um uh, to help us um cleanse and and all sorts of different ways. Uh, um, introduce ourselves to country but what we did was is we we asked for permission to be there we introduced ourselves to country Mm. through asking for permission to be there and we then allowed through language of course doing that we then it then allows us to hopefully walk safely during that period and during this time, me being with these people for the first time, I'm introducing them to language and to words and to phrases. Uh, to and I kept it simple. I kept it around like just six to eight words um, during the week. But on the third night, I'm in the bush and we're in gullies looking for these um, amazing families, which are living there. Our animal families. And I'm hearing them over my shoulder. All of a sudden, I'm hearing the others all repeating and using the words which I used. These are non-Aboriginal people here connecting with country for the first time, using the words and the phrases from this place. And that was amazing. I'm like, what? I'm turning around. I'm going, what did you just say? Mm. And they're going, yeah, kai, calling out for attention. Kai, kai, kolowa, kolowa. Uh, calling out for the koala, the male and the female's attention. Nyarawa, uh, nyarawa, Darren, they're saying, or nyarawa, 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 so that's Nardawa is that word for to introduce yourself, your name, <laughs> and uh, and that's what they were doing. Beautiful. And did the did the did those koala the, the koalas did they come down? Yeah, yes. They everything come out to play. It was wild. They've like they've they're like we don't normally get introduced to the wildlife as much as this. Wow. 
and um, and they seen so much more, and um, and we all did. We all seen so much more for whatever reasons, but because we we spoke to country and we listened to country through language. They they were doing this for the first time. Whether you're spiritual or not, uh, scientists are very fact based people and uh, can also be the science itself can be very non-spiritual uh, based. And, um, uh, but I'm sorry, I can say is, is that uh, through our knowledge systems, uh, both come hand in hand and you can't have one without the other. And that's what I think these people experience greatly. And, and uh, a refusal of fairly uh, reductive binaries. I remember you and I chatted, gosh, it's probably months ago now, but you told me about your Guala work. And uh, you spoke about them as the um, philosophers and the astronomers. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we were doing. We were finding them at the top of 30 metre tall trees at like 2 a.m. in the morning, mm. gazing the stars. <laughs> these these Gulawans have this position, which within our our, whether it's our law, whether it's our dreaming, whatever, whatever, whatever label you want to put on this, but in our thinking and our relationships and our and our whole relationship with country, everything has a role. They're not just a cute, cuddly thing which people want to go and see in a koala hospital or a koala park or whatever they are. These are extremely intelligent survival uh, teachers and carers. And, and we have to understand where the position of these, where these have. And uh, we fin out in what they give and what they bring to us. And Darren, not just to us, can you, is it possible to talk about how you understand gualas communicating with other animals? That's something which we're still all learning. Me, I'm learning, I'm a, I wait and learn and listen. It's, it's like, like, it's like, um, uh, when I go in, for me, in my backyard here, when I go into a place, it takes a couple of weeks before everything which is in country there to introduce itself and to and to be comfortable mm. with myself walking there as an example. It takes a couple of weeks for them to get used to you before they introduce themselves to you and then they start teaching you their secrets, maybe in where they live, who who lives there, how often they go there what they do there, which I just, I'm like in preschool still, kindergarten with all of this stuff here, but oh my God, what they give you and what they teach you, it's, yeah, it's something else. It's something special. And um, yeah, I don't know whether sometimes you can put it into words or not put it into words. You have to take it in what you see and what you feel and then what you do after that. Darren, that project, with as you, it sounds like it's a very multivalent project and you're there for all sorts of reasons to record um, the, anim the koalas over 24 hours and so forth and you're using language to um, introduce the, uh, the non-Aboriginal people. Ask for permission to be there. To ask for permission to be there. What, what ostensibly is that project about? 
to those people who you are yeah. enabling to be on country? What is that? Is it about counts? Is it about biodiversity? Is it about yeah. urgent recovery? I mean, it's obviously about many things. How's that project framed, I suppose, is what I'm asking. So uh, first off, um, it's about that koalas weren't supposed to be where we were. Mm. So it's actually about finding and monitoring um, so as an example, this this last week was involved with um, CSIRO and, uh, and the National Koala Monitoring Program, uh, which is a, a, a federal uh, funded initiative for CSIRO to, um, to, to monitor and find koalas. I'm also doing it on part with being involved with the, uh, the New South Wales Koala Strategy and the Aboriginal Advisory Panel, which sits within that. Yeah. And um, and also then Newcastle uh, University um, ecologists and other titles which they have. I don't know all the titles which university people have, but they like to have ologist on the end of everything. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's about, um, yeah, these are endangered species. We need to find and we need to monitor. We need to really know where they are living, where their where healthy habitat is. Uh, is the uh, do does the habitat have the ability to sustain uh, these healthy populations which aren't being impacted upon by disease which can be in some other areas can the area be protected more but if you've got a healthy habitat possibly which hasn't been impacted in the past like over the last few years like what we actually have here in the lower Hunter Valley, you know, this can this area can be actually harboring many many other species which people don't know about. That's what we actually found last in this last week was other endangered animals and plants. Yeah. Okay. We still don't know what's there with our plants when when we're talking about our plants, um, we're talking about the food and medicines, not just of us as people, but the food and medicines of our birds. Our, and our and our mammals and so forth they are everyone which lives off these uh plants they are yeah we're finding these and we're finding all these healthy so if we can find these healthy ecosystems and uh and hopefully put in place um what is needed to care for but it's one of the things is is that we have an opportunity to 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 look for one uh, at the moment, Goloa and Goloan, which we think is the names for the male and the female koala here on Awabakal country, is, is that they sitting at the top of the tree, gazing over everything below, they're what we refer to as an umbrella species. Mm. And if we can protect and save them and care for them, we actually cover every other animal and plant and grass and tree and insect and yeah like an apex well an umbrella is much a much nicer expression than yeah. an apex species but Correct. who would who would have thought those cute fluffy koalas are actually a whole different hierarchy and systems oh, yeah importance yeah. yeah thank you for that that's we could talk about that for another hour or two it's so Correct. fascinating i just love it so language of place and the inherent connectedness with the environment teaching us to care for it so it can care for us I think in that series for the UN Decade of Indigenous Languages, some of the other sort of obvious but very powerful um, ways that language can help people be strong include healing, emotional healing, family, culture, art, music, legacy, 
future, all those, all interconnected. Um, and I was just thinking when I was getting ready to chat with you about, you know, language is so embodied yeah. and there's such a renaissance underway in all sorts of spaces. You know, just look at first people's writing, literature, philosophy, science. And I was thinking of Gurumal singing in language, you know, what, what he did singing in language to just yeah. oh, kind of kickstarts the wrong expression to just... Uh, enable the flourishing and thriving of so many people being proud to sing, produce, write, record in language and be very successful internationally. It's just so beautiful. Bangara is another example of embodied language in form and music and, and soundtracks language. And if I can add... Please do. Um, one, of my, one of my most amazing um, ones who I just follow with all my heart as well and wait for every any and every song which she sings is Emily Waramunga from uh, she actually performed at Polima. Yes. Uh, um, a Anandiliakwa person from Groot Island uh, who I just love dearly in all of her in all of her her songs and country which she brings and, and love and warmth which she brings from her her family from from up and up up on that island there and uh, it's like what Goromal did is is he 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 himself as well he's not of course not being the first but he's been one of the most recent who was who was given a pathway to many other people who can put um uh, uh, uh voice and song to our stories and to our relationships for many more to continue to follow and um and i i have ones which we don't i wish so dearly wish we hear, heard me more of um in in mainstream country if i could say mainstream australia more is our our um the many song people from the torres strait islands and people like um signet repu and uh and many others there who i know personally and actually signet one hour australia's got language contest on the Wednesday evening there. I remember. And um, he actually won. I'm like, what? It's just, it's, it's just what they bring as well is, is that, yeah, within their songs, whether it's their traditional or their contemporary songs, they, they bring, they give and bring so much in, in relationship to what's happening with the climate around us, whether it's the wind and the, and the rain and the seas, and um and uh and and the you know the palm trees flowing and the coconuts falling i'm sure are all part of it but they bring so much in their relationship and understanding um from the stars to everything to the bottom of the sea because they have to be so attuned mm. especially there there unfortunately many of their islands at the moment are being um impacted upon you know the uh with with global warming and the climate change and and the sea levels rising is is that you know these people are on dire dire edge with regards to loss of loss of um uh islands a loss of country at the moment is impacting upon graves which were you know this is their families which were buried meters and meters above sea level um, are now being exposed. Um, their family have been exposed because of sea erosion now coming and hitting those and taking away these resting places. And it's um, it's something which people need to be aware of because whilst they're on the little islands and we're on the big island, our big island is not far off and we're seeing 
um, our oceans being eroded and our people and our stories have witnessed and experienced. We've got knowledge of what, what happened here 15,000 plus years ago when the last ice age melt, I should say. And the stories and the, and the dreamings off Arnhem Land across, across the Straits, I mean, yeah. those stories tell stories about places that people still know where they are under, under the ocean. It's, extra, it's extraordinary. Yeah, well, it's, it's where, where we actually lived previously. Like here off Newcastle, where I am, the coastline 15,000 years ago was actually you know, between 20 and 100 kilometres offshore. That was, that was country where people lived. Like I spoke about Lake Macquarie, Awaba, you know, this, this saltwater lake here now, you know, 15,000 years ago, that was actually a valley where people lived. Oh, I wonder if the people of Lismore can relate to that. There's a lot of country that's just gone out to sea there, isn't it? Yeah. Us all the human suffering. Yeah, yeah. Recording country, and I know recording country to walk on country is to also record the ocean and the whales and the songmen and their families. That's I refer listeners to the beautiful film, the recording. Oh, mm. It's exquisite. But relating it to what you're just talking about there in terms of climate change and, you know, dramatic change to our reefs and rivers and biodiversity and waterways and so forth, there is incredible work going on, isn't there, around recording ecosystems in order to help those ecosystems recover in time. I do, I do my own little, I do, and I'm expanding in my own little ways of actually doing that. So like um, like you touch on the whales and hopefully people get to see the uh, the, the the small clip on ABC iView there is, is that yeah, we, we need to be constantly recording and we need to be using technology today uh, to be on top of this and ahead of this. Uh, it's one thing when you have a, a Western scientist using modern technology and recording methods for documenting country uh, and the environment and everything within it. Um, but I'll tell you, and I will be brave enough to say that when you get an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander, you get uh, an original person using those same technologies and recording country, um, I'll tell you that what we bring to that recording and the understanding of that is as far greater than what you know, people can actually realise. And we need to have more of our people at that forefront doing that. Where Our rangers, our land care managers, organisations happening all over the country, our, our people who are in the sciences, ourselves who were there, you know, the likes of, um, you know, you get Jerry Turpin and, and, the, way he, and the way he documents our plants and anything botanical, I'm telling you, you're getting a, a layer which is layers which are, are far um, greater than what Western science and modern science can actually comprehend. So we're sort of talking about living museums in a sense, and I mean that in the sense of recording now for the future, not only to remember but to re-enable, to revitalise, which goes to the heart of yeah. language that we're talking about today too. You use that word, Anthony, if I could just say, is, is that you use that word museum and uh, we tend to build these buildings, these extraordinary buildings for the physical, what we can see. That's why I say living museum, which are oral music. Yeah, we need. Lived. Yeah, we, whilst. Whilst country is our living museum, mm. we actually do need physical places to store these unseen visible mm. repositories yeah. to, to, to store and to study and to value and to revisit and excavate. And like Jerry does, I mean, he's, I'm speaking with him for nourishing yeah. in a few weeks' time, yeah. which I'm so excited about because he just brings this incredible 
Western scientific knowledge, but more importantly, this incredible Indigenous biocultural systems knowledge. And then he uses every museological trick and every scientific trick in the book to to get the richest possible story for that place and for those people. It's just extraordinary. It's wonderful. It's a real privilege to speak with you and Jerry. And and part of what Jerry does, of course, is that he goes back to museums and he he excavates, you know, very ethnographic material to, to find really valuable information that otherwise would be lost and then recasts it. It's so exciting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They, get, they, they do. Both knowledge systems have a place hand in hand. We will say that and we will acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are moments when, when our traditional knowledge and our traditional sciences fill the gaps of Western, um, but I will say it's more than often that it's that Western science and Western Western knowledge fills our gaps. So, which is very good segue into big dreams and aspirations for this decade and what it might mean here. Darren, 20 years on from starting your work to revive language and culture and through the lens of where you now sit and work here and overseas doing amazing technological skills and training development for people so they can record and revitalise their languages. How do you feel about the UN International Decade of Indigenous Languages and what perhaps, I don't know, are your big hopes for what might come out of it or be generated by it here in Australia, for example? Does it mean much to you and the work you do? So 2019, uh, first off, in 2019, we never knew this decade thing was coming. No, it's an outcome of it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but we always knew that one year wasn't enough to to shine the spotlight. Mm. Just like 019 was like it turned on the lamp that mm. our languages of uh, are, are important. Um, you can't have art, song, dance, you can't have storytelling, you can't have our culture survives through our languages, and it's unfortunate that the invisible the intangible, the th- what we can't touch and see is actually the most important of all. So 019 started to shine the light on that. Unfortunately, languages um, both nationally and internationally are, um, are the ones is, is what's most at risk. We have the most loss happening. Every, you know, there is that saying which come about from a linguist who made that is that every two weeks somewhere in the world a language disappears, and um, it's that 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 is happening overnight when that last speaker passes away, and um, and that's the risk which we are at. And so, 2019 shone the light and uh, started to turn on the lamp for that languages are important, even though we know this and we feel this and we. And we, we have been, people have been devoting their lives for decades and decades and decades, like, uh, and I'll just point out one, like Uncle Stan Grant here in New South Wales with the Wiradjuri language. Yeah, without these individuals, which are there. So O19 shown that. Hmm. Fortunately, the UN and uh, uh, I think it's the UNESCO arm, um, uh, through its declaration, listened and seen and understood and 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 then forces allowed this declaration to happen for the decade now from my position whilst yes whilst we can be excited and wow we've got 10 years to celebrate our languages and whatnot unfortunately from what i've seen 
It's much more than that. We've got this one shot to get this right, to get funding in place, recognition in place. And we're not talking just, oh, yeah, let's let's throw um, $500,000 at saving a language. Well, let's throw a million dollars or whatever. I'm talking, I'm sorry, arts and culture and all these other sciences which are out there and everything else gets far greater, yet those things can't survive without our languages. And we're, we, when I first spoke at the beginning about language and knowledge and gave you the cup analogy, we're about to lose the holder of all of that. And when we lose that holder, we're going to lose all these knowledge systems, which Western translation is a filter constantly eroding that. This upcoming decade, we need proper action because it's our languages are on their last leg this is like this last moment which we have to reverse the trend of loss and to stop this and to have proper things in place to make sure that our languages are saved and that this loss never happens ever again there is an urgency and once this decade is over which is going to go really really quick i'm going to tell you it is going to be over in no time the spotlight's going to be on something else in the world and and policy and media and governments and whether it be local regional state federal international is going to move their focus to something else they are and we need to have the right things in place so we, we as, as the Aboriginal people, as the Torres Strait Islanders, as the Indigenous, as the Native, whatever collective now we want to place on ourselves, we need to have the right things in place to ensure that after this decade is over, we are never, ever going to be ever in this position of this happening. So, so Darren, what, what, what are the key leverage points to achieve that? Is it about literally getting out there and recording Every every older person in the country. We need an army. Yeah. We need an army, not with a not with a recorder, a mic in hand. We need a we need a video recorder in hand because of language is which are being lost. It's not just the oral; it's also the our traditional sign languages and uh, the expression which goes with our language and the emotion which goes with our languages is was linguistics doesn't always allow that to be recorded so i can say that we're going to have the most amazing exciting time of creating awareness like i yeah look i can happily turn on the news at night whether it be channel 10 and abc and nitv and see the weather map and see and see our our names now look the the city of melbourne being referred to as nam mm. um yeah uh, sydney on garagar country and eora and country and all of these you know, great things. We need more than that. And now we've got this opportunity. So um, there's going to be celebration, but there is an awful lot of hard work and people need to understand and respect that uh, there is much, much, much uh, ground level hard work, which is happening, which we will never, ever hear about. But this is important um, knowledges which are being saved there. And I just really do hope that, like at federal level, whether it be wherever they are in the world, we need legislations and acts in place to ensure the protection of our languages are there. New South Wales government in Australia was the first in our country to legislate the protection of the languages of New South Wales. 
Yes. And we need that. Yes. We need that there because that then uh, is the first stepping stone to making sure that our languages do survive because these aren't just the languages for us as Aboriginal people. Like what I said earlier, these are the languages for all of us, all of us living here, no matter where we come from and for how long we've been here, whether a visitor for a day or whether our families have been here for, uh, for 100 years. These languages are here for us all, and we need to understand and take that in hand. It's interesting what you say, absolutely, and what you say about, um, you know, we don't want this to be over in a decade and forgotten about. I don't know that it will go. I think there's a real hunger for change and connection, and this might be, this is the decade of Indigenous languages, but it's also the decade of consequence in terms of climate, radical adaptation, planning for bushfires for the future. So there's a real openness to listen and hear much more deeply, yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> brought, brought about by crisis in many ways. But, um, Darren, talking about protecting languages, and isn't that, you know, let's, let's be positive where there's positive news. Great that New South Wales has enacted legislation to protect New South Wales languages. At that 2019 conference, Terry Janke spoke about the work that she was specifically yep. doing on languages and protecting them legal and from legal and commercial exploitation, but also with deep cultural understanding of processes to respectfully protect languages. Yeah. And in her book, True Tracks, which, you know, has a special dedicated chapter on language and protection and preserving rights and making sure there's not commercial exploitation of languages, she speaks about there being over 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander different language groups and over 800 dialectical varieties. And I know none of that is news to you, yep. but nice to sort of share those figures. In terms of sort of asking the question, as you say, it's urgent. There's a great deal of urgency. What's your sense of the current state of play of Australia's First Peoples 250 plus languages and how they are travelling? You said that every fortnight a language is lost internationally. What's what's the state of play? And obviously, I'm not, no one's going to hold you to this. What's your sense of how quickly we're losing languages here? Yeah, uh, we've we're probably out of our languages. We're probably sitting at maybe just 20 strong in terms of spoken languages. It's in in terms of conversation actually happening day-to-day -day use so we again like uh these are we've probably got just just 20 languages which are in a in 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 a possible safe they're not sitting on the knife's edge at the moment but they could be at any time and that can actually happen with a generation we only just need one generation to falter mm. and that language can can quickly move to at risk yeah, just 20 strong languages. And like, yeah, like I mentioned Emily earlier, Andeliakwa up in Groot Island there, that's an isolated island. That is actually one of those 20 strong languages and one of the strongest. But that's only being spoken amongst 1,500 people living on, on, on that island there. 1,500 is last is classed as a strong language there. That's where we are are extreme risk, and and especially East Coast Australia, unfortunately, has has had the has because of colonisation and the impact of um, cities where eighty percent of our population lives. It's the hardest one, the most impacted. But nevertheless, our central and western languages are all sitting on a knife's edge. Whilst we can lose a language overnight. It can take decades and decades, unfortunately, to bring that language back. That's a pretty powerful place to pause. Listeners, join Darren and I for the second part of this conversation on the next episode of Nourishing Matters. Thanks for listening. 
To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. 